Well, let's open our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2. One of the distinctive features of the Christmas season around the world is the playing and the singing of Christmas carols and hymns and seasonal songs. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think why that is so. Atheism has no carols. Agnosticism has no hymns. Confucianism and Brahmanism have no anthems or alleluias. Some religions do have mournful calls to prayer. Others have dreary dirges that reveal no joy in the present, no hope for the future. Christianity, however, is filled with music, for it is the message of Christ that puts a song in a person's heart. When you have Christ in your heart, when you know what Christmas is all about, something changes inside of you. Melody starts to form and it overflows in songs of praise and adoration. It's, Christianity is unlike any other belief system. As we read the Christmas narrative in the book of Luke, there are six different songs that are recorded back to back. Six distinct songs from six different people who are expressing their response to the birth of Christ. Now over the years the church has given names to these songs. The first one is found in Luke chapter 1 verse 43 to 45. It's called the Beatitude of Elizabeth when she visited Mary. The second one is Mary's song. That's in verses 46 to 55, often called the Magnificent of Mary. The third one is in verses 68 to 79. We have there what is referred to as the Benedictus of Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist. Fourthly, in chapter 2, Verses 10 to 18, we have the Evangel song. The song of the angel of the Lord over the plains of Bethlehem. Fifthly, in verse 14, we have the Gloria of the angelic hosts. And finally, sixthly, in verses 29 to 32, we have the song of Simeon. When he was presented with the Christ child in the temple. Six spontaneous songs. When Jesus Christ came into the world, creatures on earth and in heaven burst forth into verse. Poetry poured forth. Music was born. As Charles Wesley says, let heaven and earth combine. Angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Why do we sing in the Christmas season? What is it about Christmas that fills us with joy and makes us want to sing? Well, there are several 
reasoned, several reasons mentioned within the six songs that are recorded here in Luke chapter 1 and 2. So let's have a look at those things. First of all, there's joy and music at Christmas because the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. When Christ was born, one of the reasons why there were great songs in the hearts of people was because they understood that at that moment there were prophecies which were being fulfilled. Prophecies in the Old Testament were being fulfilled. Simeon's song is recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. He's introduced to us in verse 25. And that verse gives us some understanding of the Jews longing for the fulfillment of prophecy. Chapter 2, verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a reference to Messiah. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ until he had seen the long expected Messiah. And for some reason and in some way, Simeon had received confirmation from the Lord that he would not die until he'd seen the Messiah born. And every day he probably wondered, is this the day that Messiah will appear? Is this the day when the prophecies will be fulfilled? No doubt Simeon was well acquainted with Old Testament scripture, which tell about the coming of Messiah. And the joyful anticipation of seeing those prophecies fulfilled kept Simeon alive until at last one day in the temple, he had the joy of seeing scripture fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Simeon then is an illustration of the faithful Bible believing remnant of people who waited for Prophecy to be fulfilled. Who waited for the coming of Christ. Zacharias is another example. Back in chapter 1 verse 67. It says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people. He hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets. Which have been since the world began. The Old Testament is full of prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. For example, Micah prophesied where the Messiah would be born. And Daniel actually gives us the timetable how it's all going to happen. And Isaiah told us that he would be born of a virgin, something that had never happened before. And Jeremiah tells us that the birth of Christ would be accompanied with the, the slaughter of many children. And Hosea reveals... That at a certain time, Jesus' own family would have to take him and flee to Egypt in order to keep him safe. All these prophecies were given some 500, some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And there were devout Jews every day who would read the scriptures. They would ponder these verses and they would wonder, would Jesus appear in my lifetime? Will the Messiah appear in my lifetime? When will I see the Messiah? And so when Jesus was born... And when it was apparent that Jesus was the Messiah, there were people who were filled with joy. They burst forth into song spontaneously because those Old Testament prophecies, which they had waited for, which they had mired, which they had longed for, were finally fulfilled. Consider the incredible nature of the prophecies concerning Jesus' birth, the coming of Messiah. For example, 700 B.C., 
Micah prophesied the town in which Messiah would be born. What is the probability, what is the likelihood of such a prediction happening? If we were to examine every piece of Australian literature from 1770, we would not find one phrase suggesting that a future Prime Minister of Australia would be born in Paddington, be raised in Bankstown, as Paul Keating was. But the prophet Micah put his finger on one of the smallest countries of the world, Israel, and designated one of 12 provinces within that tiny land of Israel. That is the province of Judah. And within that province, he put his finger on a tiny little town called Bethlehem. And it was there that the Messiah would be born. David is the only king of Judah that had ever been born in Bethlehem. All the other kings of, of, of Judah from generation to generation were born in the royal city of Jerusalem. Most of them probably born in the palace. So if the prophets in Micah's day had guessed the birthplace of Messiah, they never would have guessed Bethlehem. They would have guessed Jerusalem because that's where the kings were normally born. But when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, and it became apparent to everyone that he was indeed the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Messiah. We can understand why people were filled with joy and so excited. They couldn't do anything but burst into song. We sing at Christmas time. Because the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled. The Messiah has come. The Saviour has come. Salvation has come. And Christmas time reminds us of that truth. Secondly, there's joy and music at Christmas because the problem of sin has been solved. Once for all, our sin problem has been solved. If we look back to Bethlehem, if we look back to the birth of Jesus, we have to look through an empty tomb. We have to look through the cross. We have to look through the Garden of Gethsemane. And if we look back to that manger... We see there the answer to the problem, the answer to the question that had plagued mankind for millennia. How can man ever come close to God? How can sinners ever approach a holy God? In the Old Testament, those people of faith, they brought their sacrifices to approach unto God that way, the Old Testament way. But the Old Testament also prophesied concerning the Lamb of God, there was a promise concerning a lamb of God who would be slain for every single one of us and thus put to rest forever, solve forever the problem of sin for all people who will put their faith and trust in him and his work. And that's what Mike, uh, sorry, Zechariah is talking about, chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. Verse 69. He hath raised up a horn of salvation for us. Verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers. To remember his holy covenant. Verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by, by the remission of their sins. 
through the tender mercy of God. Zacharias understood that the coming of Messiah was for a specific purpose. He was to come as a redeemer. He was to come providing salvation. He was to come providing remission of sin, forgiveness of sin. And by his sacrifice upon the cross, Jesus Christ crosses out the black lines of our sin by the red lines of his precious blood. Because our sinless saviour died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God and sinners reconcile. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. There was joy in singing at Christmas, because the way to pardon, the way to peace with God was about to be open for all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives. Recovering of sight was about to be given to the blind. Salvation no longer was through types and symbols and figures, but it was there open face to face. The knowledge of God would no longer be conformed, confined simply to the Jews, but it would be offered to the Gentile world. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God would be just and the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. Why is there joy in singing at Christmas? For the same reason that there's joy and sing in heaven over every sinner that repents. When salvation becomes a reality, when we understand and experience what it is to be forgiven, when the burden of sin is lifted from us, when we know that we never have to stand before God for judgment for sin, that's a reason for singing. And indeed, this will be our eternal song. Revelation 5 verse 9. The redeemed in heaven says, Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Thirdly, there's joy and music at Christmas because the plight of the poor and the lowly has been remembered. Listen to Mary's song, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Saviour. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. Verse 52. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things. And the rich hath he sent away empty. If Christ had come as an evangelist to his own no one would be saved because there's only one of his kind. That's God. God doesn't need evangelizing. Therefore, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. He was born into a poor and lowly family. Verse 48, Mary says, of low estate. Verse 52, of low degree. Verse 53, hungry like poor people often are. Chapter 2, verse 24, he was dedicated at the temple by, through a poor man's offering. Jesus came and identified with the poor and the lonely, lowly. He was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. He told a parable about searching diligently for the, the poor and the lowly, the insignificance, the outcasts. And in Mary's song, 
Mary sees very, very clearly a remarkable thing about God. He's about to change the course of all human history. The, the next three decades of Jesus' life are, be, are about to be the most important period of time in the history of the world. And where is God? He's not only occupying himself with one, but with two poor, lowly, Obscure women, one old and barren, Elizabeth. The other poor, lowly, virgin, young, Mary. Mary understands how, how condescending God is to her. She understands the grace of God, the, the love that God has for the poor and the lowly. And she breaks forth into song. I wonder if you've ever wondered how amazing it is. That God ordained beforehand that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as the prophet Micah says in chapter 5. And that God also so ordained that when the time came, the Messiah, this Messiah's mother and Joseph, his earthly father, who were living in Nazareth at the time, in order to fulfill his word, in order to fulfill the prophecy, God put it into the heart of Caesar Augustus. To send out a, an edict to the whole Roman world that all the Roman world would be taxed and everyone had to come back to the city of origin. What if you've ever felt small and insignificant among the you know, 7 billion people in the world and all the news is of big political things going on and all the big social movement and important people and prominent people and powerful people in the midst of all of this we feel very, very small and insignificant. Yet it is in, implicit in scripture that underneath all these massive things that are going on in a national scale, on a global scale, a universal scale, God is moving. He is moving things to be involved in the lives of little people like little Mary and little Joseph and little you and me. God is at work on a massive scale to bring his attention and his focus upon lowly people. God wields an empire to bless his lowly children. Why is there joy at Christmas time? Because no matter who we are, no matter how poor we are, no matter how insignificant we may feel, every Christmas time there is a renewal within us of this message that Christ has chosen to be amongst and at work amongst lowly people. He came in a common way. He was born not in a palace, but in a manger, not surrounded by kings, but by shepherds to make sure that none of us, no matter how small and lowly and insignificant we think ourselves to be, none of us are outside of the sphere of God's attention and his love and his care. Fourthly, there's joy and music at Christmas because... The possibility of peace is renewed. In more than a few past wars, the warring nations would call a ceasefire on Christmas Day. They would agree that on Christmas Day they wouldn't shoot at each other, wouldn't drop bombs on each other, wouldn't try to destroy one another. And one such truce was the Christmas of 1914. World War I had begun just a few months, only one month before. And the fighting on the Western Front was between the Germans and the 
allies, it was fierce. Hope for a quick war was gone. The armies understood that they would be bitter enemies for years. There's a system of trenches that separated the two sides and the area in between was known as no man's land. But on Christmas Eve, an unofficial truce began. German soldiers started singing Silent Night in German. And the men on the other side of the divide joined along in English. And soldiers who beforehand were attempting to kill one another were now singing together about the wonder of Christ's birth. And as the night and as the singing continued, and as the Christmas day came on, the soldiers emerged out of their trenches. They joined one another in no man's land. They shared in burial services. They played soccer together. It's estimated 100,000 soldiers along the Western Front laid down their weapons all that night and the next day. In subsequent years, their commanders would demand that they continue fighting on Christmas Day. But in this one sacred interlude in 1914, it was a reminder of the incarnation that caused a ceasefire. And even if only for a brief moment, there was peace on earth and goodwill to men. And what a wonderful testimony to the purpose for which Christ came to bring about peace. And wasn't that the message that the angels proclaimed in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, verse 8? There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the, the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill towards men. And we sing at Christmas time because within our hearts there is for the Christian the possession of peace and there is for the Christian the hope of peace for the world that will one day come. Today, there are many places in the world where peace is not in anyone's vocabulary. Yet every Christian knows there is coming a time when peace will reign upon the earth. And every Christmas time, this kind of hope springs anew in our hearts. The Prince of Peace has come. And with him is the assurance that one day swords will be beat into plowshares. And spears will be turned into pruning hooks and they will study war no more and they and the world will be at peace. Fifthly, there's joy in music at Christmas time because the purpose of life is declared. Throughout each of the six songs, we find this note consistently about glory to God and praise to God. Mary's song begins in chapter 1, verse 46. My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Elizabeth was so full of joy and praise to God when she met Mary that the baby in her womb jumped for joy at the presence of Messiah. 
Zacharias and his Benedictus said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Luke chapter 2 verse 20 says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. The message of the angels was glory to God in the highest. What is the real purpose of life for all of us? According to the Westminster Catechism, it summarizes it this way. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And in the message of Christmas, we find this wonderful story everywhere. We read these songs, spontaneous songs coming forth in the chapters of Luke. They're all extolling the glory of God. They're all praising God. They're all blessing God. They're all rejoicing in God. The purpose of Jesus's birth and ours is to glorify God. Everything Jesus did was for the glory of God and everything we do is for the same purpose. Even things as mundane as eating and drinking are to be done to the glory of God. Every circumstance of life is to be lived for the glory of God. Every circumstance of life, Jesus tells us in John chapter 9 with a man born blind, is not necessarily because of sin, but it's certainly absolutely for the glory of God. In John chapter 21, Jesus spoke to Peter about the kind of death by which he would glorify God. In every situation, we all have, doesn't matter what it is, we all have a clear goal. In every circumstance, we have a clear purpose. In every task, no matter how mundane, it's made significant. Every task is made worthwhile. Every task is full of meaning. Nothing is is inconsequential. Nothing has no meaning or purpose. Everything that happens in life, we're to respond in one way. Colossians 1.18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So therefore, let, it, let, there be, let there be no doubt in our minds as to why we are here. Our life is full of meaning and purpose and significance and value. Every little thing is to be done to the glory of God, is to be responded to for the glory of God. Sixthly, there's joy in music at Christmas because the predictions of Christ's second coming are secure. As we read the prophecies of Micah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Daniel and Isaiah, we follow them through some 600, 700 years, all the way up to the time when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We are amazed at the accuracy of the prophecies. That reveal in one case exactly where Jesus would be born. Or Isaiah could say he'll be born of a virgin. Or Jeremiah would say his birth would be surrounded by the slaughter of infants. Hosea tells us he'd have to flee to Egypt in order to be kept safe. Yet all of those those prophets who gave us details literally, specifically, accurately, fulfilled in Jesus's first coming also give us prophecies concerning his second coming and how accurately accurately will those prophecies concerning his second coming how accurately will they those prophecies be fulfilled just as accuracy as the prophecies concerning his first coming you know there are some things mentioned in the songs recorded in Luke that weren't fulfilled at Bethlehem Because they will be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. Even some things that the angels said to Mary haven't been literally fulfilled yet. 
chapter 1, verse 31. The angel says to Mary, Behold, thou hast shalt conceive in thy womb, bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall, God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. If you add them up, there are eight different components to the angel's prophecy there. Five of them, five of them have been literally fulfilled concerning the first coming of Christ. The other three remaining are yet to be fulfilled. And if the first five were fulfilled literally, why would we not assume that the next three will likewise be fulfilled literally to the letter? Why is there joy at Christmas? Because the same Jesus who came the first time is coming again. Came the first time to take away sin. He comes the second time to reign as king. Brethren, let us rest upon God's promises and embrace them as Elizabeth did, as Zacharias did, as Mary did, as Simeon did. Let us not doubt that every word of God concerning future things shall be fulfilled as has been fulfilled every word concerning past things. Our eternal safety is secure by promise. The world, the flesh and the devil shall, shall not ultimately prevail over the believer. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Let us be persuaded of these promises. Let us embrace them and not let them go. They will never fail us. God has never broken his word. He is not a man that he should lie. We have his seal upon every promise. God's word is sealed with the blood of Christ. You know, some of the traditional Christmas hymns and carols are tremendous repositories of theological truth. For example, if you just contemplate all the verses in Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In that hymn are found such doctrines as the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the incarnation, the depravity of man, the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. His sinlessness, his second coming, just to name a few. And likewise, in these songs here, in Luke chapter 1 and 2, they are full of theological truths which should fill our hearts with joy and praise as well. I wonder, is this Christmas season a time of joyful praise for you? If not... <clears throat> It may be because the problem of your sin hasn't yet been resolved. Because you haven't yet come to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. Or it may be that you're living for yourself and for your own glory and for your own pleasure and therefore have missed the most important thing about our life. Or it may be that you have no hope for the future because you've lost sight of the promises of God and the certainty of God's word. Those issues which I just touched on there, guilt and purpose and hope, they're all met in Christ. The most significant issues of humanity are all met in Christ. 
In John chapter 4 verse 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. John chapter 3 verse 17, God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And the fact that we have such a Saviour and the fact that we have such a salvation truly gives us cause and reason to rejoice and to sing. Let's close in a word of prayer, then we'll sing our final hymn this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your intervention in time and in history. I thank you for the, the record here concerning those who understood that the child to be born was indeed the promised Messiah. And the significance of that event and their response to it, the praise and the joy which was theirs. And Father, I do pray that is, as we reflect anew and afresh upon the fact that you provided for us a wonderful saviour in the person of Christ, whose birth we acknowledge a special time at this time of year. Lord, I do pray that our hearts, truly like theirs, would be overflowing as well. That our hearts would be full of praise and thanksgiving, rejoicing, uh, joyful, uh, because of all that you've provided for us in Christ. Lord, may this be the impact upon our own hearts. And Lord, I do pray that our own lives being impacted by the gospel, that, that we in turn might be a blessing to others round about us, that they, through us, likewise, might be impacted by the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn, the words will be up on the screen. Uh, Ben's going to come and lead us in the singing of that. Thank you, Ben.